This is Father Gregory Pine. And this is Father Bonaventure Chapman. And welcome to Godsplaining. Thanks to all those who support us. If you enjoyed the show, please consider making a monthly donation on Patreon. Be sure to like and subscribe to Godsplaining wherever you listen to your podcasts. So on this episode of Guest Planning, we're very delighted to be joined by Professor Kayser, Professor Christopher Kayser, who's coming to us from Loyola Marymount University in Southern California. So thanks so much for joining us on the show. My pleasure. Uh, so many of our listeners will know of your work uh, through various publications, uh, also through work that you've done with the Thomistic Institute. That's where we first met at a lecture you gave at the University of South Carolina and then at the Student Leadership Conference that was held in Estes Park, Colorado a couple of years back. But for those who don't know you, would you just say a word about who you are, what you do, and uh, maybe why it matters? <laughs> sure, yeah. Uh, I'm a professor of philosophy and chair of the philosophy department at Loyola Marymount in Los Angeles. And I also work with Bishop Robert Barron as the St. Thomas Aquinas Fellow for the uh, Word on Fire Institute. And uh, this fall, my third edition of my book, The Ethics of Abortion, came out. So I'm happy that that is arrived after uh, the decision of Dobbs to overturn Roe versus Wade. So I think this issue is uh, even more important in a way than it was uh, before. Uh, but I also have interests outside of bioethics. So I've written about uh, the intersection of positive psychology and uh, spirituality. And I've written about the virtues, especially Aquinas on the virtues. And uh, in my free time, I like to do jujitsu. So Incredible. yeah, that's that about covers it, I guess. <laughs> this this episode changed now into a demonstration of jujitsu. So we're going to not talk about abortion at all, but just watch that. Um, well, we can actually, do that. I, I, it might be a little bit hard since you have such good distance right now. I'm not sure if uh, if I'll be able to really do any of my moves on you, but <laughs> that's that's true. You'll have to do it spiritually. Um, right. Well, I was thinking, Father Gregory, we I I think that you've met him before because I, we. We met Father Kazor in print, which is kind of like meeting a person, uh, by reading his book on proportionalism in our, in, in our uh, what is it, uh, uh, Morals One, I think, course at, at the uh, House of Studies. And then he came and gave a talk, you gave, he's in here, uh, you gave a talk to us on habits uh, at one of the Thomistic, Thomistic circles or something. So you've been, uh, right, yeah. That's right. No, I remember that. I remember that. Although you called me Father Kayser, uh, that's kind of a spiritual upgrade. I'm afraid I'm just a layman. Well, you know, I, that, I, that's I, do have, I do have kids, so I guess I am a father biologically, but, um, <laughs> but normally only my kids address me as father. But I mean, if you feel comfortable with that, I guess I could go with that. Oh, sorry about that. Yeah, well, it's, you know, Francis, we call Holy Father Francis. So um, he, uh, even though he was only a deacon, but maybe there's, maybe this is the, the whatever. No, Dr. Kayser, it's a pleasure. <laughs> this will be this will be our first act of jujitsu because since the sacred scriptures said call no man father, we felt somewhat uncomfortable by being called father, and so we right. just turned it on its head. Uh, All right, you do right. that in jujitsu, but it felt right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, so to start the conversation, then uh, this episode is coming out right around the anniversary of the Roe v. Wade decision, and folks in the United States, many are accustomed to go to Washington, D.C. for the March for Life. Uh, so they kind of have this time in their mind as a time to be especially solicitous for the good of pregnant women and for their children, uh, whether it be by prayer, fasting, demonstration. Um, but yeah, we find ourselves in a strange post-Row world with the Dobbs decision, as you mentioned. And so maybe we can just start with that. Like, what is the place of continued argumentation about abortion in the present setting? Because I, I think a lot of people are kind of exhausted with the culture war. And maybe they take Dobbs as an occasion to exhale. But 
you still publish the third edition of this book. So it seems like the conversation is ongoing. Maybe you could just kind of give us a little bit of the lay of the land as things have taken shape in this last year. Well, I think that with the decision of the court in Dobbs, uh, the issue of abortion is much more in the public mind and in the public conversation. So both inside the church and outside the church, at least in the United States, there is ongoing conversations about this. So the magazine Commonweal actually came out with a whole uh, section of their issue dedicated to discussing Dobbs. And so I think in a way, now more than ever, it's important to think clearly about this issue, think compassionately about this issue, and try to reason with our fellow citizens about how to move forward towards a more just and compassionate society. Yeah, I think it's interesting. You you would think, well, since Dobbs is here, now it's kind of settled or that we can, again, breathe easy. But in some ways, this is, as you say, the more important one, because now people are forced to have this discussion explicitly because of states and because of the legislation and all of this, so that in a way, the arguments are going to become even more heated, I suspect. Uh, and instead of having heat, we want light on this. And your book, which I, you know, we're going to plug here again, of course, third edition, is spectacular. And people think this might, it is academic in a sense, but it's, it's very readable. And it, in one in sense, you, you do a good job of putting together all of the objections. In a sense, there, there are almost no objections I can think of abortion that aren't dealt with in this book. And yet it's still a narrative that has an argument uh, about it. So what do, you, what do you see as the audience for the book? And how can they, how can they use this, this book, the, uh, the Ethics of Abortion? Yeah, I would say the audience is any intelligent person of goodwill. I have written the book to take into account all the very best and the most prominent arguments in favor of abortion. And I tried to do my best to really uh, investigate this issue extensively. This book took uh, you know, many years to write, actually, and now in its third edition, I've, I've continued my research to really take into account all the very strongest arguments that are given, given in favor of abortion. And so I've written it, too, I hope, in a way that non-scholars can read. So really, any intelligent person, I think, I hope, can pick up the book and follow uh, the arguments of the book. So uh, my hope is that it does contribute uh, light to the discussion. What I've tried to do in the book is to be very fair to those with whom I disagree, to not engage in straw man arguments where you put forward a version of their view that's just completely ridiculous, but rather to present a steel man argument. And so in a way, I've been inspired by the work of Aquinas, who, as you know, in the objections to his own views, tries to put forward a very strong version of those views. And so that's what I've done in this book, is look at all the uh, literature on abortion and the strongest views in favor of abortion, and then to try to reason uh, about those views in such a way, I hope, that will be understandable and persuasive to those that disagree. Mm -hmm. So just seizing on a couple of things that you said, you said that it's addressed to people of goodwill. Uh, you said you wanted to take the strongest arguments, that you take seriously the arguments of those who would give contrary positions. Um, so I've noticed that like in the book, that your approach is, is broadly speaking, ironic in the sense that, like you said, you want to do it fairly or you want to be fair to your opponents, if we can speak of them in those terms. Um, but then also, you, you don't have a lot of patience for bad argumentation, and justly so, in the sense that you're willing to identify bad argumentation as bad argumentation. And I'm thinking here of St. Thomas, who you cited. Uh, so he does what you describe in the objections that he entertains, but you'll find him at the end of a couple of treatises, uh, speaking somewhat 
sternly to those who will speak contrary to excellent goods. I'm thinking here especially of uh, religious life at the end of two of his treatises that concern the religious life. He says, basically, don't whisper in the corners, come out into the public square and debate me. Because if you can only gain purchase on the minds of the young by doing so, you know, in fell form, then that's, that's done not with goodwill, that's done with malicious intent. So maybe just as a way to focus this consideration, what would you say about the exercise of tolerance in these types of debates? Because we want to tolerate certain things, but we don't want to tolerate other things. So I don't know if thoughts along those lines inform your approach, but if so, something along that. I, I guess what I what I do is draw a distinction between tolerating uh, individuals and people on the one hand and tolerating uh, false views on the other hand. And I think those really are distinct. So in my view, we should always respect and even go beyond toleration, even love those with whom we interact. And those could be people that we interact with in terms of debate and argument, but also just personally, I mean, in our everyday life, I think we should really try to show real love for everyone because after all, from a theological perspective, everyone is made in God's image and everyone is also called to communion with God. Uh, on the other hand, it isn't real love for others to uh, put forward or let them, it's not real love not to seek the truth in conversation, in conversation with others. So if we're having a conversation that's aimed at greater insight, it's an act of love, uh, not of intolerance, to help someone try to gain greater insight. And that's true for both sides. In other words, I feel that I have much to learn about the ethics of abortion, even though I've written about it. Uh, and I feel I have much to learn about a lot. So it can be the case that when I'm talking with someone with whom I disagree, that I really do gain greater insight into whatever it is that we're talking about. So I think of it as kind of a two-way uh, two street. And so a real conversation, a conversation among those that have goodwill for each other is both uh, very loving in the sense of respect is shown to everyone, but also is genuinely seeking the truth. And I think of the, these things as not in opposition, as if, well, either you're loving or you're seeking the truth with others. In fact, if you really love others, it seems to me that you would want to seek the truth with them. You seek the truth for yourself, you seek the truth for them, because the truth is a good that isn't diminished when you divide it. And the truth is a good that every human person needs in order to find real happiness, in order to find real fulfillment. And so I think seeking the truth and respecting persons really go hand in hand. Yeah, I think the, one of the nice parts about this, about this book and your account, if other people listen to you, they can find you online, is there is this unified vision that arguing for the ethics of abortion isn't just one piece. It's a part of the bigger, bigger understanding and orientation to the people as having dignity. And this is just an aspect of that. And it's about seeking truth and having conversation and tolerance. I think those are, are beautiful. We're in a polarized society. It seems like, I'm sure they said this 100 years ago too, in 1860s too. But it seems like we're, whatever the case, whether it was before or not, we're still very polarized. And also, I think we're becoming fragmented and walled off from each other. So in today, for instance, if you want to receive your news, you might receive it from, if you're progressive, from CNN, or if you're conservative, you might receive it from Fox News. You can, in a sense, silo yourself off from the others around you and the civic uh, citizens, your co-citizens. But... And you might think that now that we've got to talk about abortion, people might say, well, you know, we're just so different. It's a fundamental absolute presupposition. You know, you believe in pro-life, I'm pro-choice, and 
you know, these are just, these are really deep fundamental issues, either because they're political and therefore they involve some personal like aesthetic choice or something, or because life is just too metaphysical. It's too much metaphysics. It's you, we couldn't possibly come to a, to, uh, a position on this through argumentation. Um, so why don't we just realize that we have two different positions and that we just learn to get along with each other. And that's what's really at stake. And then it becomes a matter of compromise. I take it, of course, in this book is that you don't think it's a matter of just getting along and we should just say, well, I can't tell if the soul is the form of the body or it's not the form of the body. So we'll just kind of get along with each other. But what is your response to people who say, you know, these arguments, they just don't go anywhere. Um, we're too polarized. These are fundamental presuppositions that people have. So it's not, arguments won't do anything for that. How do you respond to someone in, in that kind of situation? Well, I think arguments uh, won't do anything if someone's closed-minded and someone's not a person of goodwill. But if someone is open-minded and a person of goodwill, I'm not sure how that person could say, well, I'm unopen to gaining new insights. I'm closed to the possibility that I might be wrong. I'm unwilling to even consider alternative points of view. Well, if someone says that to me, then yeah, I, I wouldn't bother speaking with that person because they just told me they don't want to talk and they're not open to anything that anyone else has to say. And they think apparently they're infallible and that they have all truth. Well, okay, I guess, I guess we at that point do have to not talk anymore. But I think for everybody else, which is, I think, about 99% of people, you really can talk about this in a reasonable way. So here's one way to move forward. Every reasonable person, I hope, would agree that it's wrong to kill you and me right now. So if someone were to, you know, burst into the room right now and, you know, stab us to death, I think, I hope, everyone of goodwill would agree that is totally wrong. Now, why is it wrong? Well, there's a great uh, atheist philosopher named Don Marquis, and he put forward this account of why killing you and me right now would be wrong. If someone bursts in the room and kills us now, that individual is not taking away our past. So I'll still have the good memories, uh, or I'll still have enjoyed the you know friendships that I made before and the knowledge that I gained before and all the good things that I enjoyed yesterday and last week and last month, you know, he can't take those away. But what would happen if someone kills me right now or kills you is I would be deprived of the chance of enjoying goods in the future. So I would not make new friends. I would not gain new insights. I would not have uh, new people that I could love and be loved by. So all those goods that I had a chance to have in the future are all taken away. Now, that same principle applies to killing a newborn baby. If you kill a newborn baby, you're depriving her of all her chance to enjoy the goods of life. She's not going to make friends. She's not going to learn new things. She's not going to see beautiful sunsets, etc. But the very same principle also applies to killing a human being prior to birth. If you kill her prior to her birth, then she is deprived of, again, the chance to make new friends, the chance to learn new things, the chance to see beautiful sunsets, etc. So the very same reason that it's wrong to kill you or me right now is a reason to think that it's wrong to kill a newborn baby and a reason to think it's wrong to kill a prenatal human being. So these principles that I'm applying, uh, referring to in this book, these are not theological principles. I'm not making an argument that, you know, the Bible says that, you know, thou shall not kill or an argument like uh, Pope John Paul II strongly condemned abortion in Evangelium Vitae. It is true that he did do that. But in this book, what I'm doing is appealing to principles that I hope any person of goodwill could understand. And so I'm hoping to move the conversations forward among those people that have uh, goodwill.
So you reference uh, in your acknowledgments one uh, theorist or one academic who responded with like 21 pages of single space notes, kind of precising your arguments or reacting to your arguments or encouraging you to whatever, advance your arguments in this, that, or the other way, um, which I think is an excellent testimony of, of goodwill. Um, and I guess like when I'm thinking about like somebody like this, who's reacting to your book, I imagine that they approach it from a very different vantage. Uh, we had a professor at the house of studies who spoke about the curse of knowledge. Like once you know a thing, you, you can't unknow a thing. And so I can't unknow, uh, what I know or what I love when it comes to this particular issue in reading your book. And so as a result, in part, I find it very convincing. Uh, but I also wonder about the moral intuitions of those who don't agree. And then as a result, I wonder about the purchase of moral intuitions in this type of argumentation. Um, I think that, you know, because of other conversations, specifically, I'm thinking right now, philosophy of mind uh, conversations, people say, well, if you do, and then describe some crazy situation, it's obvious that, and then draw some wild conclusion. I've begun to lose a little bit of faith in moral intuitions. Um, but you use them, it seems to me, to good effect. So maybe the question would be, like, what type of lifting do you think moral intuitions can do? And what type of lifting can they not do, specifically in the context of a book addressed to people of goodwill? Well, in this book, what I try to do is look at all the most powerful arguments for abortion. And many of those arguments appeal to, you're right, bizarre examples. So you have a kitten uh, that is injected with a serum and then the kitten can talk or you're hooked up to a violinist, or there are people seeds that fly in your window. I mean, all these kind of really bizarre arguments. And my basic view about those bizarre examples is that the more bizarre it is, the less likely it is going to track anything like a normal intuition. I mean, if the example is completely weird, we're not gonna have normal everyday intuitions uh, about it. So I don't think that's super useful. So what I try to do for the most part is even though I talk about those examples, I try to ground my own work in real life, uh, realistic cases and realistic examples. So like for instance, when we just talked about uh, the argument that it's wrong to deprive an individual of their chance for the goods of life, um, you, you notice that that is a realistic kind of example. I mean, people do get murdered and the question is, well, why is murdering somebody wrong? So that's not a you know bizarre, talking kitten kind of example. That's a very much an everyday example. So for the most part in the book, I try not to appeal to fantastic science fiction, bizarre, uh, you know, totally unlikely kinds of cases, but rather to cases that actually could take place. And so I think for that reason, um, the book, and I think certainly the pro-life view does not need to rely on and does not in fact rely on bizarre, uh, you know, science fiction sorts of cases. And I think that's a strength of the pro-life view. I think yeah, I want to follow on this, Father Gregory, because Professor Kazor, your approach in this book is not only about dealing with all those arguments, but again, working from, you could say, a common morality, moral tuitions in this sense, that um, we'll put it this way, in the early 20th, in the 20th century, uh, P.F. Strassen wrote a book on, called Individuals, and he, he split metaphysics between descriptive metaphysics and revisionary metaphysics. And he put Aristotle and Kant as being descriptive metaphysics, which is just describing what we know about reality. You're not trying to change it. Revisionary metaphysics is actually we're trying to change what we know about, re what we account for reality. So like Descartes, for instance, um, this is something. And I, was, I, I thought about this distinction when you were, when you were, when I was reading your book, because you seem to be doing descriptive ethics in a way in, in that you're working from, hey, here's what we know about 
our ethical judgments. Here's where we have a basic common morality. We all agree that you can't just kill me right now, you know? And no matter, and so if anything leads to that being the case, we're going to have to reject that as, as they, we're just not going to go down the route. You could, and I think so much of the other side, or oftentimes the other side is on this revisionary side and says, look, I don't trust common morality. Why would I trust common morality? If it turns out by my best reasoning through weird cases that I can kill you, then I'm just going to throw away the common morality. And I think we all think that's bonkers, but um, it is true that sometimes common morality, whatever you mean by that, or at least you could say common morality, might get things wrong. You make the case very uh, emphatically that slavery would be an example of this and that, for instance, this is akin to an abortion argument because slavery is a matter of saying they might be human beings, but they're not persons or something like this. So if someone says, yeah, you're doing a lot of descriptive, just our common sense judgments, what everyone kind of agrees on, but we know that in morals matters, oftentimes we, we get it wrong. So why, why not really trust the weird arguments or just different arguments as opposed to starting with this common consensus? What do you, what do you think about that? Well, I do agree that our common intuitions about moral issues can be wrong and that we can think, oh, this is perfectly fine just because my culture does it or look, everyone's doing such and such, so it must be fine. And so I would agree with you that, that our intuitions or our common morality uh, can go off track. But in this book, at least, what I was trying to do is uh, follow the method of Aristotle. And so I take Aristotle in many works to begin with things that he thinks at least almost everyone will agree with. And I say almost everyone. Why? Well, because yes, you could get someone who says, look, all uh, my experiences are illusions. I'm a brain in a vat. I can't trust my senses at all. I mean, you could get someone who has a very, very radical view. You could obviously get someone like Nietzsche or certain kinds of atheistic existentialists who totally reject any principles of morality that they don't give to themselves. And giving yourself uh, the principles of morality at the end seems to me like no morality at all, because a self-imposed law is also a law that I can self-unimpose, right? I'm going to say, well, uh, to hell with that. I changed my mind or I just don't like that anymore. So I think you're right. Uh, I mean, I can't in one book handle all these objections from, uh, you know, people that are uh, denying the, object the existence of any objective morality or dying the reality of uh, the senses or, or et cetera. So what I've tried to do is move back as far as I can. And so in this book, for instance, what I do is I start off with infanticide. And I say, well, look, everybody virtually agrees it's wrong to kill, you know, an eight-year-old child. I've never seen any philosopher, I've never seen any uh, public intellectual say, well, yeah, killing, uh, my pro-choice view extends all the way to, you know, eight years old. And once they're in kindergarten, well, that's it. No more, no more abortion at that point. Post-birth abortion goes wrong at, at kindergarten. So clearly there seems to be some consensus, at least about that. And so then I, I begin by looking at, okay, well, when exactly does that begin? So we agree killing eight-year-olds is wrong. How about killing someone at two years old? And that seems to be where at least the most strong pro-choice view ends up landing. So there's a lot of people like Peter Singer and others who will say that um, post-birth abortion is uh, permissible and even that it ought to be legally permissible. Uh, and so you know, if that, if that view is correct, you'd say the uh, right to life begins at about two years of age. And so in the book, basically, I look at, okay, what reasons are they giving for this? And I find those reasons 
uh, quite weak. I think they rely ultimately on a view of the person that Locke put forward. And in Locke's view, it wasn't that his view basically wasn't about which individuals deserve legal and moral protection, but rather which individuals can be held legally and morally responsible. And so that's a very different question, right? The point at which a, a human being can be held legally and morally responsible, the age of reason, it's just a totally different question than which individual humans deserve to be protected and respected. So in any case, um, I think you're right that in this book, I can't and did not cover, uh, you know, objections that that would undermine any common morality at all, like objections that there's, you know, killing other people's fine, stealing from other people's fine, uh, slavery is fine. Yeah, I mean, if someone has that view, this book is is too far down the road to help them. But I would say that at least now, I mean, almost everyone does in fact accept common morality. And I'd say this, almost everyone, uh, even if theoretically they reject common morality and they say, oh, in, uh, you know, I'm, I think there's nothing wrong with killing people. If someone does kill their best friend, their mother, uh, they actually, in fact, do react as if they do accept the, the norm that killing innocent people is wrong. So I think those people tend to be inconsistent. They have a kind of theory. There's no such thing as human rights. There's no such thing as, you know, objective right and wrong. But in practice, again, when someone steals from them, when someone beats them up, they don't react as if, oh, this is just your taste. It's just your choice. Nothing wrong with that at all. Uh, so I think there's an internal incoherence in most of those people. Yeah, I was just going to just follow up for a second um, to say that uh, I, I thought it was a strength, and I think it's a good move for the approach of pro-life as we go forward, of taking your approach of not getting bogged down with people who don't actually even act in the way that they say they believe about like pure moral skepticism, but just starting from this common morality and then working from regressing back to that to say, hey, this is just the natural if you believe that you shouldn't be able to kill uh, an eight-year-old child, then there's no reason that you should believe that you can kill an infant woman. So I thought I thought it was a great I thought it was a great move on your part to philosophically just accept those and go from those. And I think it's a way forward for for the discussion. Uh, so we have time maybe for one more question, and I just want to follow up on that particular methodology. So I'm thinking about arguments and and how arguments go off the rails, and oftentimes. You know, we have our own baggage that we're dealing with, and maybe when we're confronted by the arguments of another, we don't want to admit that there's anything worthwhile in those arguments because we're just attached to what it is that we think or choose. Um, but that's on the part of our interlocutor, oftentimes it's like smugness or condescension, which ends up undoing the interaction because we just feel, yeah, great rancor and ire, and then we have no real desire to make a genuine exchange. And so... You have a way uh, in your prose of like very, very straightforward and like charming discourse. So like there's not a there's not a hint of condescension or smugness, which is incredible. And as I was reading it, I was thinking that like this kind of regressive model that Father Bonaventure is describing or the way in which you just kind of mapped it, it's it's almost pedagogical. Um, like like you have, you know, the, the skills of a teacher. And so as you go from infanticide, like maybe it's based off self-conceptuality or maybe it's based off dot, dot, dot. And then as you go through different criteria, for birth and then different criteria for whatever it is or like quickening or heartbeat or dot 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 and as you regress you're you're taking your reader by the hand and walking him or her through a kind of series of judgments so maybe i don't know just uh as a final word on argumentation and the way in which it's pedagogical and the way in which we can kind of grow in our capacity to engage in arguments what are your what are your thoughts about that well i think aquinas for me is a real guide in this in that 
uh, he says that we need to appeal in part to authorities that our interlocutors accept. So if we're all Catholic, then, and let's say we're all Catholics who accept the authority of the magisterium, then to appeal to the magisterium is something that works in an argument. If someone is uh, discussing, a Catholic discussing things with a Protestant, uh, well, the magisterium is not really going to be a very uh, operative authority there for that person. And likewise, if you have a Jewish person, well, then appealing to the gospel is not really going to get much traction. So I think you have to appeal to what the interlocutor is going to find persuasive. And so in this abortion debate, uh, what I try to do in the book is make no appeal at all to theology, to the Bible, to religious faith, to the teachings of the church. None of that is, it seems to me, helpful if you're discussing the issue of abortion, for instance, with an atheist. So what I've tried to do is start, um, not at the very beginning, not start at, you know, well, why be ethical at all, or what are the ultimate principles of morality, but to start at, at the place where I think many secular people begin with, that almost all secular people believe in human rights, right? I mean, if you ask 99% of people in our society, do you think there are basic human rights? They say, yes, of course. And then if you begin with that premise, you say, okay, great. Every single human being then has basic human rights, including the right to live. Yeah, yeah, okay, I can sign on to that. And say, okay, well, let's look at the evidence about the uh, individual in question in the case of infanticide and abortion. What is the evidence that this individual is living? Well, this individual can die, and only things that uh, are living can die. And this individual is growing, this individual is assimilating nutrition. So all available scientific evidence points to the idea that this is a living individual. Okay, great. Well, is this living individual a human being, or is this living individual the member of some other species, a dolphin, a cat, a tree, etc.? And again, I would say most people accept science, and science shows very clearly this individual is brought about by two, uh, a male human being and a female human being doing reproductive acts. So if a man and a woman do reproductive acts, the only possible thing that they can reproduce is a human being. They cannot reproduce a dolphin, a tree, a giraffe, any other kind of living human being, or any other kind of living being. If you look at this individual, this living individual, it has human tissue, it has human DNA. So all available scientific evidence points to this being a human being. It can't be any other species. So if the interlocutor accepts the principle that all human beings have basic human rights, and then they accept the scientific findings that this is a living individual human being, well, then it seems to follow that this is a individual that has basic human rights. So this argument, as you can tell, is not appealing to scripture or to the magisterium or to the Pope or to anything like that. It's appealing to things that not everyone, but almost everyone in our society already accepts. The principle that all human beings have basic human rights and then the principle that science can tell us something about what individuals are living and what individuals are not living and what individuals are members of the human species and what individuals are not members of the human species. So I'm trying to appeal to things that, again, not every single person would agree with, but people of goodwill in our society, I think 99.9% .9 of people in our society really would agree with. Boom. All right. Well, thanks for writing the book. Thanks for revising it twice. Uh, for our listeners who are interested, would you say a word about uh, where they can find it? Uh, sure, they can find the book. Uh, it's published by Routledge, so they can go there. They can go to Amazon and find it. 
uh, they can find it. I think I hope where good books are sold. So yeah, I think, <laughs> I think they can find it uh, in lots of different places, and I and I hope it's useful for people. Great. Well, thanks so much. Thanks again. Thanks for taking the time. Uh, turning now to our listeners. Thanks again, and as always, for listening to God's Planning. Uh, please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Like the episode, subscribe on YouTube or your podcast app, leave a five-star review, all of which helps, especially you know for a timely thing like this. Super, uh, super helpful just kind of get the word out when uh, people are thinking about it. Uh, if you'd like to donate to the podcast through Patreon, follow the link in the description or the show notes. And in those same description and or show notes, you'll find links to merchandise uh, at godsplending.org and to updates on upcoming events. So we'll have our first retreat announcement at the beginning of March. So you can start getting excited for that now and more retreat announcements to follow. All right, know of our prayers for you. Please pray for us and we'll look forward to chatting with you next time on God's Planning.